Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes. An evening with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. So here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. You know, every now and then we get a guest who's accomplished so much and witnessed so much that we could easily do a seven-hour show. And today we're lucky enough to have one of those people. He's a musician, singer, record producer, author and one of the greatest songwriters this country has ever produced. With numerous platinum-selling songs to his credit, including Wichita Lineman, Galveston, Up, Up, and Away, The Worst That Could Happen, All I Know, MacArthur Park, and of course, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, which Frank Sinatra called the greatest tort song ever written. His original compositions have been recorded and performed by a who's who of popular music, including Johnny Cash, Rosemary Clooney, Kenny Rogers, Linda Ronstadt, R.E.M., Carly Simon, Harry Nielsen, Tom Jones, The Supremes, Brian Wilson, James Taylor, Billy Joel, and Barbara Streisand, to name but a few. He's been a member of both the Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. He's the only artist to win Grammy Awards for music, lyrics, and orchestration. And in 2016, Rolling Stone named him one of the 50 greatest songwriters of all time. As vice chair of ASCAP, he continues to lead the fight to preserve and protect the intellectual rights of composers and songwriters the world over. His brand new book released today is called The Cake and the Rain, a memoir. Please welcome a man Glenn Campbell once called the greatest musical poet of our time, Jimmy Webb. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Did you get chills? Boy, you know. The only from 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 your mouth to to God's ear. I mean, <laughs> the only that thing wild. The only thing missing would be to end it with found dead in his Los Angeles apartment. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, when Gilbert uh, occasionally breaks uh, breaks into uh, MacArthur Park on this show spontaneously, Jimmy, without any yes. prompting at all. Well, that's great. And we had a running joke in between us. We said, now we'll, if it gets out there, now we'll never get Jimmy Webb on this show. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here you are in the flesh. Uh, I, I could sort of imagine what you're what you're describing there. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, you won't actually have to to, to uh, experience yeah. it. And just so the audience will know, uh, Jimmy has been like working since like like five o'clock in the morning. That was my wake up time, and, <laughs> and we're recording we're recording this at six thirty p.m. And, uh, and I've it's been a really exciting day. It started with. Don Imus, you know, uh-huh. talking from Texas, which uh, I know very well. I was raised in West Texas, and I think we had established some rapport. Oh, good. A rapport there. Because uh, he, he started out very grumpy, and I think he, he, he sort of mellowed as we, as we went on. Uh, that was fun. It was really fun. And um, I always wondered what it would be like to be on Imus, you know, in the mo- I like getting up early and doing show business things. And then I went over to uh, Sirius, and I literally, I was like on uh, show after show. Oh, you did Cousin Brucey? No, I did did Steve Earle. Okay. So you've been going nonstop since this morning. Yeah, I've been doing them one after another. Promoting the book. But I've been saving some extra energy for you. Oh, you (laughs) flatter us. (laughs) Now, and you started to tell us a story your friends, well, yeah. Well, you you said that Paul Williams had been here, and yeah. So I was, you know, gonna, you know, as usual, blab about someone <laughs> behind, <laughs> behind their back. This is the great songwriter <laughs> Paul Williams. We're talking. He's, yes, a, he's, a, he's our chairman, a chairman of the board at ASCAP. And it was very kind of you to mention ASCAP, but I, I really have to say quickly, in case any of my colleagues are listening. That I'm not serving as vice chair right now. I'm, st- I'm on the board, very much on the board, and very interested in uh, all things ASCAP. But I am not serving as vice chair. Uh, that that honor belongs to Doug Wood. Um, but Paul and I uh, know each other from uh, aeons ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when we both used to use the same studio, A and M Recorders, which was really the old Charlie Chaplin lot. I mean, it's like a piece of old Hollywood, like a like a museum piece, and of course that was A and M and uh, Jerry Moss, Herb Alpert, right, uh, and a beautiful studio, and and there seemed to there was certain a moment in time when everybody recorded there, and so I remember that Paul and I would often be there at the same time. Sometimes the Carpenters would be there. Sometimes Joni Mitchell would be there. George Harrison. It was an exciting wow, place. Wow, that's cool. And one night we were doing a B.J. Thomas record, and uh, they were sort of running uh, a little behind, and they, they wanted me to play a piano part, and Paul and I came in, and we were ready to work at 7, and they said, we, you know, we need you guys about 8. And we said, okay. So we go to this place across the street, which I, uh, um, for lack of a, the real name, I'll call it the Dance of the Seventh Veil. Okay, and it was, uh, <laughs> it was a, it was a strip club. It was, a, it was a full-on strip club, and we sat there, yeah, Paul and I. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm 18 years sober now. <laughs> 
Well, we sat there and got drunk. <laughs> and we got up and went back across the street to do this B.J. Thomas record. There's a picture of us together standing beside the piano that is so ridiculously sad and strange. <laughs> and somewhere, somewhere along the way after that, if you guys are patient enough to hear this, we decided for some reason that we were going to Palm Springs. <laughs> and we woke up in Palm Springs, I mean at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and neither one of us knew where we were or where we'd been or who we were with. Uh, and um, and that was just one of the... You one know, of many? I mean, one of many, you know, uh, little tears that we went on, went on together. And that, you know, I mean, I... You know, I know I shouldn't be telling that story about the chairman of the board at ASCAP. That's all right. Sometimes we look at each other during a meeting, and everyone's being really serious and everything, and we just laugh. It's just <laughs> we'll have him back. We're going to hold back anyway, but now we'll have him back to tell his side of that. Well, yeah, I mean, he'll probably correct it. So, but <laughs> those are the essentials. Mm-hmm. So those were the days, you yeah. know. And another guy you, you you partied with a little bit. Is it was your old friend Harry Nielsen? Can you talk? That a was another bit? thing. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about Harry? He comes up on this show quite a bit. Um, well, Harry and I started out on the wrong side of the bed. Uh, I had written something on a Richard Harris album about a lyric. It was about skipping, uh, skipping like a stone through the garden, or something like that. And I had written, I think, somewhat capriciously, not in a in a mean way. I'd put BN and then an asterisk and then down at the bottom it said before Nielsen. Uh-huh. Well, it was really a Fred Neal song. It was like, and skipping over the ocean right. like a stone. And he got wind of it somehow. And one day I'm sitting at home and David Geffen calls me and said, Harry Nielsen's over here and he wants to see you. He's got a bone to pick with you. <laughs> and just the way he said it, I knew that it was, it was like a serious thing. And I got my car and I drove over and Harry was down. The pool was covered and he was shooting baskets down there. Thin as a rail, skinny guy. And whoosh, whoosh, putting him right through the net. He was a good basketball player. And I walked up there and he said, Well, what an asshole you are, you know. <laughs> Something like that. And I said, hey, hey. And he said, ah, you're a prick, you know. And um, I said, no, no, no. I said, what, what about that before Nielsen thing? Before Nielsen. He thought you were taking what a shot at What does that mean? I said, I said, no, no. That was just, that was good spirited. I said, that was comrade to comrade bullshit. You know, you're like taking the piss out of me. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not. Man, I just meant, you know, like I didn't want you to think I was writing something that you had already written. I wanted you to know that I wrote it before I heard your record. Well, I think you better think about that. I think you better think about your motivations. You can go <laughs> like intellectual on me, right? And so it, it started rough, but we like got into a groove together. And uh, before it was over, we, we were close friends. And I went over to London and I was there for the whole making of Nielsen Schmielsen, yeah. which may I was, be I was going to ask about maybe that. Harry's 
yeah. greatest record. There are so many great records. And I was there with uh, Richard Perry and in the studio with him every night. And I got to tell you guys, we burned London, man. We we tore we tore that city down, the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> it was never the same. <laughs> And uh, and uh, it sort it sort of went that way. And I, I I'll tell you I'll tell you a good Harry story, and then maybe we will maybe we'll move on. But yeah, one day Harry comes over to my house with a English producer who produced for the BBC named Stanley Dorfman, and uh, it was a, a series called In Concert. And I'd done one of them. Harry had done one of them, and El, um, a very very young Elton John had done I believe had done one of them. And um, he came over and he says, uh, listen, you know, I want to take Stan. I want to take him on a sightseeing tour. And um, he said, I want to borrow your XJ6. I had a brand new Jaguar XJ6. Burgundy. (laughs) I mean, immaculate car. (laughs) And he said, uh, I said, why do you need my XJ6? And he says, well, it's just nice. I want to I be nice, and I want to take him to Palisades, and I want to run him out to, you know, Malibu. And I said, oh, okay. He says, yeah, we'll bring it back in a while. And I said, all right. And I tossed him the keys, and they split. And they dropped off the map. And I didn't see my car again for two months. And what they were doing is they drove across the United States <laughs> in my car. Unbelievable. And then one day, like two months later, Harry called me and said, Hey, Jim. He said, uh, I'm sending your car back. And he said, It's going to be on Union Pacific, like flat car number, you know, X1000, you know. And um, he said, You need to be down there at three o'clock on Friday afternoon. And this is like the Union Pacific. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, and, and, and I didn't even, I said, where, what, who, what, what, click, you know. Friday afternoon came, I went over to the train yard, I found this guy, Max. He took me, he found the car, he found the, the flat car, and there's my, there's my XJ6, my, my prize, my beauty. And it looked like it had been in around the world demolition derby <laughs> it had like some kind of a weird thing welded to the to the radiator to keep the hood down and it was all beaten and he battered just tra- and, he just trashed it oh uh, they destroyed my my car and that was harry's idea of a of a fun thing to do Okay, just when the show was starting to get good we're gonna throw a monkey wrench into the works with this commercial word. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. And now back to the show. Now, you met with the Beals and spent a little time with them at a time when 
all of them hated each other, it seemed. Well, you were present for some of the recording of the White Album. Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, it's it's almost like an embarrassing story, uh, but um, and in fact, it's it is it's an embarrassing story um, uh, because I I was under the impression that I'd been invited over there, and it wasn't Abbey Road. It was uh, Trident. It was in Queen Anne's Court, and they I don't know why they were there, but they were there, and you could check it out. And they were cutting honey pie. Uh-huh. And that's what I call it. I think it has another title. But it was honey pie. Right, from the White Album, yeah. And um, so this friend of mine and I walked in under the impression we'd been invited and walked in. And um, it was was an interesting tableau because on the right, the right part of the studio to my right belonged to John Lennon. He had a Persian rug and he he was burning uh, incense and he was kind of – Sort of banging at a at an old acoustic guitar, and Yoko was there sitting cross-legged, and and in the middle, George Harrison was standing upright and sort of, I would say, lackadaisically plucking at a at a, a bass, a Fender bass, um, and in the left, to the left, uh, Paul and Linda, and Paul was sitting on the piano, which trying to play the piano. And Linda was wrapped around his neck. She had her arms around his neck. And he was sort of like this. And he's the honey pie. (laughs) And uh, somewhere down below my feet, because the drum booth is under the control room at Trident, was Ringo saying, is anyone there? You know, uh, can you hear me? Can I get out of here? You know, he's he's he's. I don't do a very good liver body. That's okay. Accent. But basically, he's sort of saying, "Is anyone there?" You know, I mean, it was it was crazy because it was kind of what was happening to the it's band. Kind of surreal, you know. And then they came in to listen to a track, and suddenly Paul is introducing me to George Martin and Jeffrey Emmerich, who were later close friends of mine was introducing me to these icons of, you know, and he introduced me to them as Tom Dowd from Atlantic Records. And I was so tongue-tied. I knew who Tom Dowd was, and I knew that I wasn't him. (laughs) (laughs) But they were the Beatles, and I sort of like, but I'm not not Tom Dowd. And Paul's going, and Tom Dowd, Tom, come over here, Tom, you know. And he says, I want to play a guitar solo for you. And they got a guitar solo up on They're playing at maximum volume. I mean, ear-splitting, painful volume. He said, what do you think of that guitar solo? And I said, oh, I said, I, I think it's really good. Thanks, Tom. I've got another one I'd like for you to hear. And he, and he plays another one. He said, which one do you like best, Tom? And, of course, he's taking the piss out of me, of course. Right, right, right. right. But I don't know this. I'm a really shy kid. And... Um, Finally, when he was finished with me, I guess, uh, they sort of went back into the booth, and George Harrison came over and whispered in my ear and said, that's a great arrangement on MacArthur Park. And I knew that George knew who I was, and I walked out of there going, what the freaking (laughs) just happened? Right. What happened, you know? And then I found out that, they did it to everybody. Oh, I see. 
that it was they it would just if you came within range uh you know you were fair game and um that a lot of people having had, you on as it were a lot of people you know taking yeah. the piss out of you yeah. uh, a lot of people had similar experiences with them and i i don't know how i mean i don't think you knew them all that well no i didn't yeah. i i actually got to know them better after that but um it was hard i mean you know, and I don't. I loved the Beatles. I, I they, they were so seminal to me, and, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was such an important record to me, and and to everybody else. And I'm also an Anglophile. I'm a hopeless, helpless Anglophile. And uh, you know, I I fell in love with two English girls in a row, and both of them just chopped me up like a you know like a Julianne. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I just I couldn't get over the accent. All they had to do was say hello, right. you know. Um, no, I loved all things English, and I loved the Beatles, and I loved the, the whole experience. I, I don't mean to come off as as uh, as critical, but they they I would say as a whole, they were not the warmest people in the world because of their. You know, their very special standing, which was really far above. I mean, the Rolling Stones could claim to be somewhere near mm-hmm. the same cloud that they perched on. So they were detached. Uh, they were. They were. Yeah. They were almost deliberately detached. Interesting. I, I always wondered how much of the way we all think of John Lennon is true and how much he just created like an advertising man well he to me he was he was the most unemotional of them uh, and uh, if if you read the book you're going to read a couple of things in there where uh, during the lost weekend I was I was sucked into that orbit um, really was not seeking to be a part of that scene at all. And, in fact, I was kind of jealous of John because Harry was my friend then. And uh, he would call me up, and and I'd say, where are you? And he'd say, oh, I'm in the studio with John. And I'd say, what are you guys, joined at the hip now? You know, I'd, I'd, I'd say snarky, like, mm-hmm. bitchy little things like that. Because they were always together. And um, a couple of things happened one night— they got in a in a real jam because uh, John was on the verge of being thrown out of this country uh, because of I believe it was a marijuana charge on the other side that sort of had him in hot water. But really, the government, yeah, Nixon, yes, was after him and and would was waiting to pounce on waiting for him to make a mistake. Well, he made the mistake. Him and, him and uh, Harry got into a sort of heckling match with the Smothers Brothers at the Troubadour one night. Yep, famous. And to make a long story short, on, a, um, on the way out through that little cramped hallway in the back, um, some sort of altercation ensued with a photographer, and uh, John was accused of striking this female reporter. And breaking her camera. Now that's that's those are the that's the news story. Well, the next morning at four o'clock in the morning, those guys are at my house, and Harry woke me up. The phone rang, and he said hello, and I said, 
can I say this on the podcast? Fuck you. Because I knew it was him. (laughs) And I knew it was something. Uh. I didn't know what, but I knew it was something. (laughs) And he said, come on now. You know, he says, I've got John Lennon out here. I said, sure, sure, sure. I said, look, I'll open the gate. But I said, just can it, will you? And he comes up the thing. And he comes in through the kitchen door, and I'm down there in my bathrobe, and he says, I'm not kidding, man. He says, I got John Lennon outside. I said, right, right. He said, come on, come on, I'll show you. He pulls me out the back door. He opens the back of the limo, and there's John. Very sort of pale and quiet. And he slams the door, and he says, listen, here's what you got to do. And he lays this plan out for me where I'm going to go downtown to John's attorney's office now, right now, 5 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going to tell his attorney, I'm going to be deposed, that I was at the Troubadour with Harry and John, which I was not, (laughs) (laughs) and that I saw the whole thing, and that John never touched the bitch, and he never broke her camera either, you know. And I'm going to swear to this, right? And I did. Now, I don't know whether to be proud of it or ashamed of it, but I know that there was a certain code of behavior. It was like there was a world that they lived in, and people just fell into line, and you found yourself doing things. And I rode all the way downtown with them, Gave my deposition. I'm sure I did a great job. You guys know I can talk. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully. Um, And when I got home, I got out of the car, and it was like there was no wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It was like, boom, they were gone. Whoosh, they were gone. Nothing. And it wasn't like when my birthday rolled around, I didn't get a little card that say, you know, love John and Yoko. You know, it was like... Out of sight, out of mind. Wow. It was like, you know, you you could perjure yourself if you want to. Wow. That's so really what people thank you do nice. for us. <laughs> you almost got yourself in legal problems. I could have been. Uh, serious legal problems, and they just took the it county, as a... Uh, the, the county attorney, uh, uh, I think it was the either city city of Los Angeles or the county of Los Angeles, dropped charges against John for lack of evidence. So, um, was I part of that evidence? I, I might have been. Uh, and so I, I'm not. I don't take credit for keeping him in the country, and I am not. I know that crazy. I just uh, I I'm, I recount that in the book, and I say that you didn't uh, really expect thanks. You didn't really expect to be coddled in any way. It was. It was a. Very, I, it's, it was a strange situation. How strange? They could have at least scribbled on a piece of scrap paper. <laughs> no. Something. No. Something. An FTD no. bouquet. Something. No, you could, you could, you could send. Well, you could send anything. You could send like a a, a, a baby llama. Right. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of the Beatles, speaking of the Beatles and George Martin, Jimmy, there's the, there's a connection between MacArthur Park and uh, and Hey Jude. They, well, here we George, go. George. These are these are these are again. These are the the sort of uh, borderline self-incriminating Beatles stories. Uh, <laughs> but uh, George Martin became a very very close friend of mine, mm-hmm. and um, 
uh, he he would he would tell me on more than one occasion that MacArthur Park, which was seven minutes twenty one seconds sure. long, had kind of caused a shakeup in the top forty world because they really did have to reschedule commercials and things like that to fit this in. I used to get paid three times every time that record played. Really? Yeah, three times. Three for one. That was the good, the really good part of that. <laughs> and, and the radio stations wanted you to shorten it originally. Yeah, yeah. I was asked more than once. Yeah. I just wouldn't do it. Yeah. Um, so there it was, 7 minutes, 21 seconds. And they're putting out a new record called Hey Jude. It's going to be their masterpiece up to that date. And they get to listening to MacArthur Park, and they see that it's this has really never been done before on Top 40, and they want Hey Jude to be as long as MacArthur Park. So they took George into the studio, they made some kind of a tape loop, and they overdubbed some other stuff, and they worked on the ending a little bit, and they developed this long fade. And everybody's heard the long fade on Hey Jude. They just don't know you know, why it was done or where exactly did it come from. And they timed it out, and George said they stood at the console and looked at the clock, and they timed it out to 7 minutes, 17 seconds. That's cool. And um, it's just, you know, it's just one of those, you know, interesting things. They felt competitive. They felt um, like somehow or other that, Making Hey Jude longer would would uh, I don't know what it, I don't know what exactly what the motivation would be except to have a record almost as long as MacArthur Park. A friend of mine who I used to call and I sometimes I would get his answering machine. You can and, say who it is. Uh, yeah, that you wouldn't even know. Huh? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. oh, I thought this was pen. I no, thought this was no. something you did a pen. It was uh, and just to be a prick. When his answering machine would come on, I'd immediately click on MacArthur's Park until (laughs) all space on his machine ran out. (laughs) I love that he says it like Richard Harris. (laughs) Talk talk a little bit about the song, which, by the way, you recently performed in MacArthur Park. Yeah, I did it. I've done it uh, during the last three years. I. I think I've done it two summers, and uh, what was that like? It's kind of weird, um, but it it reminded me. I mean, it was very, uh, you know, this is gonna. Some people would just laugh at this, but it was very emotional for me uh, because the, the song really does, you know, with all the, I mean, everything. Saturday, it's it's been on Saturday Night Live. It's it was in Airplanes too. It was, oh, Weird Al did it. Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah, sure. It's really been down the comedy road yeah. a few times. Yeah, uh, and I it's okay. I because it's iconic. I signed off on most of those parodies and, and myself, um, but I'm kind of emotional about what it means to me and 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 being there in, in MacArthur Park. And it's a free concert. People come in. And I play a show, and I, usually I have somebody with me. Like I had Billy and Marilyn, mm-hmm. Billy Davis and Marilyn McCoo with sure. me last time Fifth I did. Fifth Dimension. And um, I do this song, and it, and it makes me remember that everything that I wrote about, I saw. 
that there were, I remember where the old men played checkers by the trees. And I remember where the cake was in the rain. I remember everything. Uh, because everything in there is literal. It's, it's literal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I always joked with the crowd there. And I say, you know what's going to happen is that there may be a tear in the time-space continuum when I play this. <laughs> because the last time because the last time I did it here, several people disappeared and uh, have That's never fun. been heard from again. That's funny. So, um, you know, we kind of made a, made a joke about it. But it was, both times it was beautiful. It was in the summer, and there was a big moon over the Pacific. And I'm in MacArthur Park, and I'm playing MacArthur Park, and everybody is so quiet. And they're listening to every word, and uh, you know, I dare I say it was it was kind of a special moment both times I did it, and I would go back and do it again. Your life flashing it's, before your eyes yeah, as, you're, yeah. as you're reliving these the imagery. Yeah, yeah. So there actually was a cake out in the rain. Yeah, there was. See, all this all these years, I thought this is some like deep meaning. It's no, like, my girlfriend, my girlfriend and I used to have lunch in the park every day, and um, and one particular day we were we were interrupted by rain, and uh, it sort of scattered our lunch, and we went running for the for the, the Aetna Life Insurance Building for the steps, and we sort of left our picnic, you know, scattered across the lawn. Um, so it's just, I mean, there was never any deep mystery about any of it. It's prosaic. Um, and it's just me taking images and kind of presenting them in a surreal way. Um, how it came to life as a record is interesting too, because do I have this right that you were going through things you would, you'd worked on a charity event with Richard Harris, you knew him or an anti-war show you knew richard harris and you were going through your 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 bag of songs and do i have this right it was the macarthur park was the last one in the bag that's right <laughs> <laughs> and he said famously i'll have that jimmy webb <laughs> <laughs> i love I that love that jimmy webb <laughs> i love that he called you jimmy webb yeah, yeah. He, he always called he always called me jimmy webb yeah i love that he never called me jimmy and he never called me webb but he always called me Jimmy Webb. <laughs> what a character he I, sounds like. I just can't believe that these people who either baked or bought that cake, that how, how like, how, what an important thing this would be. You know what? It was, it was, it was life for 50 yes. years. It was, like, it was like a couple of slices of cake. People have this image of a big... You know, it was actually... Uh, you'll see if you look on the title page of the book there, mm-hmm. there's a quote by W.H. Auden that I remember. Yeah, Jimmy's book here, The Cake and the Rain. Uh, yeah, right in the middle. Right, right. The opening, the opening quote in the book is something that I... My face looks like a wedding cake left out in the rain. And, and yeah. that, that's something that he U. wrote that I sort of remembered from school and sort of borrowed and uh, mm. alluded to, you know, trying to sound literary. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, who would know? Who would think that it would become a hit? Who who would think that? And I didn't. Twice. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was. Well, it was a hit. It was. It was number two in the United States with Richard, 
And then almost 10 years later, it was number one with Donna Summer. Yeah. And it was on the UK chart twice. Both times it was, you know, better than halfway up. One time it was number one. One time I think it was in the 20s. Uh, and it was just a re-release. Somebody said, let's re-release MacArthur Park with Richard Harris. It was a hit again. Uh, and it was international. It was, a, it was a hit in Germany. It was a hit in Italy. Yeah. There were versions of it in Italian that were hysterical. Really? So, uh, they were just <laughs> the funniest Italian. thing you ever heard. Uh, and, and then, of course, the, the, the comedy guys got a hold of sure. it. Sure. I remember and, Father and, Guido and, uh, doing it. Don Novello. Yeah, Don Novello. And he, you know, he he was like going. Uh, he he had his wallet. And he, <laughs> he'd take out his wallet and he'd go. And after all of the loves of my life, yeah. and then he would drop this sort of accordion of pictures of of chicks, you know, like <laughs> in bathing suits. After all of the loves of my life, I mean, he, it was you know he, he was merciless. I mean. He he did it on SNL one night, and literally a wave of green icing came on. I guess it was blown on. It must have been with huge fans. I never asked Lauren Michaels about that, but somehow they made a wave of green icing. It's got to blow your and mind. And it, like, pushed everything off stage. Does it blow your mind that this is a song, this was very deeply personal to me, <laughs> yeah. it was about a breakup, yeah, and now it's become this monster, it's become this thing that's 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 in the culture for so long, Power. I used to get irritated about it. I used to, sometimes I'd get mad because people would be, believe it or not, they'd be angry with me. And uh, like someone would come up to me after a show and say, "What do you mean, cake out in the rain?" <laughs> <laughs> they want an explanation. You son of a bitch! <laughs> you know. <laughs> I demand an explanation. All right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they would be so yeah. angry, and I would. It just. I was taken aback. I've. I've gone through all kinds of, of uh, stages of yeah. grief. Yeah, bet. <laughs> over over MacArthur Park. <laughs> but I'm. I. You know, I'm at a point in my life now, and I'm going. Hey, you know, look. You know, some nice versions. It's of what it, it is. But Waylon you know? Jennings did a nice version of it. Right, Waylon the, Jennings recorded MacArthur Park four times. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's very it's four times. Very, all right, I I was gonna wait till the end of the show. You're gonna to torture the guy? Yes. <laughs> I was gonna you wait did, till no, didn't you show. just hear him say he was in mourning? Now I feel like <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> why have Why have sympathy toward another human being? Can we sing a duet of MacArthur Park? Well, I guess. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm, just, I'm just, I'm just gonna. Uh, we'll just do the chorus. All right. Oh. All right, Gil. Okay, so you take what, the we melody. We can't do "Spring Was Never Waiting for no, a Girl." No, no, no. no, no just, why just, not? Just go I to the like MacArthur part. Park. <laughs> MacArthur. <laughs> Fuck you, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only going to do the chorus. Okay. Let me find the chorus like I don't know it. Okay. Where, where, where's, your, where's your note? This one? He doesn't have a note. <laughs> you obviously have never heard me sing before. <laughs> should, should I just start playing then? Okay. Yes. Give, him a, give, him a, give him a cue. MacArthur Park is melting in the dark. All the sweet green icing flowing down. Someone left the cake out 
have seen we sat here weeks ago he broke into song he spontaneously broke into macarthur park and now i have witnessed the great jimmy webb accompanying gilbert on macarthur park i can i can die a happy man (laughs) really there's a nice version on letterman too that will lee did with you guys uh, yeah, he was so nice about that, yeah. David. He, also good. He, he always liked that. And he said, I'm going to do this before I go off the air. We started talking about it, And the next thing I know, they're talking about strings. And um, then they call me up and they said, we're going to have our band. Plus, we're going to have brass and we're going to have strings. And Will Lee's going to sing it. And... Dave's going to do a whole, I guess, like a 15-minute segment about, you know, Harry. Mm-hmm. He told a long story about his son, Harry, and Harry wanted to know about MacArthur Park. And so he's trying to explain it to him. And he says, heck, I'll just do it for, uh, and, you know, he, he seems to have an, a wonderful affection for his son, which is natural. And so for Harry, he, he laid this on, and we all went on there. And um, it was always an amazing band. I loved I loved being on that show. I was on there with Carly Simon. Oh yeah. I was actually on there with Glenn. Um, I remember. And um, so many memories, just so many memories. And that night, Will Lee. I mean, he, he was he was absolutely tremendous. But at the very end of MacArthur Park, there's a there's a cake. And behind it is a ladder. <laughs> and Will Lee yep. is singing what you just sang. <laughs> oh, no. And he's, he's climbing the ladder and playing the bass. Yep. And I'm looking at that, and I'm going, this could be the biggest disaster in the history of show business, because this is live television. <laughs> and if he falls off that ladder, he goes, oh, no. <laughs> And hits the floor. On, on I mean, he's going to be hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were people before the show saying, "Will, don't don't climb the ladder. Don't climb the ladder." He did it. He has a great voice. Yeah. Have you seen the Fab Four? Have you seen the Beatle? The the, the Beatle yeah, band. Yeah, I they, love they the they Fab Four. Fantastic. Uh, I yeah. mean, they they play the stuff live that the Beatles never played yeah, live. They are it's, great. It's I was totally, just going to tell our listeners, check out the Fab totally Four, Will, convinc- Will Lee and Rich Pagano. Oh, yeah, and the Hogshead Horns. Yeah, they're absolutely wonderful. And they'll do a whole Beatles yeah. album yeah, in a show. Great. And when was the last time you saw Glenn Campbell? Well, uh, let's see. It's been about, I think it's been about three or four months. Uh, 
every time I go to Nashville, I go see him. He's a, he's uh, at a facility that's uh, operated and was actually created by Vince Gill and Amy Gill, and uh, especially with musicians in mind. And uh, it's quite lovely. Um, he's he has someone someone with him twenty four hours a day at at the at the stage of this disease that he's in. Um, and he, what I can tell you is that Glenn was always an upbeat guy. He knew ten thousand jokes. He loved jokes. He loved comedy. Anybody who ever saw the Glenn Campbell show knows that he we remember loved. Oh yeah, he loved Glenn, Glenn loved Campbell. Comedy. Good time hour. And um, he uh, he always looked at the uh, upside of things, and that part of him hasn't changed at all. The very core of his personality, which is buoyant and upbeat, is still buoyant and upbeat. And he says hi, and he's you know he's mm-hmm. glad to see you. He can't exactly remember who you are you know i mean this is you know they face these issues as a friend but i feel embarrassed talking about what i've gone through of course um as a friend because i have been uh humbled by the heroism of the family the family has been Absolutely tremendous, and uh, through I mean some of the some of the roughest stuff that you can go through. I'm sure. I'm sure. And uh, um, I know eventually we're probably going to get to this anyway. But on May third, I'm going to mention it now. Yeah, go ahead. Well, go ahead. Well, well Ashley Campbell, uh, Glenn's daughter, will be among the performers that are going to be yes uh, doing a tribute, uh, a celebration of the music of Jimmy Webb, "The Cake and the Rain" at Carnegie Hall on May third. And uh, also uh, Amy Grant, Hanson, Toby Keith, uh, the great Art Garfunkel. Uh, you mentioned Judy Collins. You mentioned your friends Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. Love them. Graham Nash, Johnny Rivers. What a lineup. Uh, Dwight Yoakam. Yeah, Catherine, Dwight's going to be What a lineup. And the, and the proceeds uh, from the show will be donated to... Uh, to the, the Glenn Campbell Foundation is called the I'll Be Me uh, Foundation. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the traditional recipient... Uh, of these kind of benefits go to the National Alzheimer's Foundation. So those two will split the money and good. And uh, it just it started out as as you know uh, Laura sort of wanting to give me a seventieth birthday thing. And um, your wife Laura's yes, Savini, who was here yes, with us, yes. And uh, and uh, it sort of became to me it it became more more important as it took on this this role of of uh, raising the profile of this disease and focusing attention on the families because the families really go through unbelievable rough times um, and they hang in there they hang in there the love is always there and and uh, uh, I you know I I'm you know I'm I'm grateful that Glenn is is alive. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I I never I never. Uh, oh. Um, oh yeah. I have to I have to tell you this. Um, 
This thing is sponsored by Michael Dorf and the City Winery. Oh, City Winery, sure. I'm sorry I left uh, that out. And, and um, you know, they, they've been so great to me. I started playing City Wineries around the country, and they, very quickly they became— actually, the whole thing happened one day. I was riding along on an airplane coming up north from Nashville, and I looked across the aisle, and this guy was looking at me. He said, you're Jimmy Webb. And I said, yeah. And he says, I'm Michael Dorf. He says— you know, I, I'm I'm City Winery. And I said, oh, I've always wanted to play City Winery. He said, well, now you're playing the City Winery. Oh, that was a nice piece of serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great one here. So, yeah, yeah. and it's a great gig. It's a fab foe there. All, all the artists will tell you that it's, it's a great place yeah, to play. great room. And um, so they've waited in, and, and, and they're actually sponsoring the concert hall. And, and, and people can get tickets to the show by going, I, I assume, to... Uh, to the Carnegie Hall website. We'll tell people. We'll tell people at the end of the show. Well, we'll get okay. the inf- we'll get the information. Yeah, uh, and we'll tell people before uh, before we sign off. We'll make sure everybody has that, and we'll put it up on social media okay. too. Okay. Okay. Good. Tell us about your your relationship with Glenn, which goes way back. And how many Jimmy Webb songs has Glenn Campbell recorded? One hundred fifty. One hundred thirty. I'm doing a show, uh, which uh, we kind of tour around the country. That's multimedia. It's got it's got big screens in the back and stuff, and uh, it's films that it's films that I've taken and recordings that I've made and saved and personal pieces of uh, memorabilia, uh, and it's all in sync with this with with really the story of how Lynn and I came together. Uh, and how diverse we were at the beginning because I was lefty-left and he was righty-right. Sure. And the first thing he ever said to me, and people say, wow, how'd you meet Glenn Gamble? The first thing he ever said to me in the, uh, was I came walking over to him in the studio at Sound Recorders at Yucca and Argyle in Hollywood, and I said, I'm Mr. Campbell, I'm Jimmy Webb, and he, he was ignoring me, basically. He was turning his knobs. Because <laughs> I'd just gotten back from the Monterey Pop Festival. My hair was down to my shoulders. I was wearing a red bandana. I had on these beaten-up moccasins and these, you know, I had a yak vest. <laughs> <laughs> like Sonny Bono. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. And, and and not to put too fine a point on it, but my yak vest hadn't cured out just right, you know? <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, and uh, I walked up to him, and, and about the second time I said, Mr. Campbell, I said, I'm Jimmy Webb. I wrote uh, by the time I get to Phoenix, and he looked up at me with those, you know, penetrating blue eyes, and he said, when are you going to get a haircut? Just like that. I mean, it was really a challenge. Ow. Friendship was born. And, you? Uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. That's no. it. That's no. it. And and but he was he hung out with Bob Hope and John Wayne and the Orange County Republicans, sure, and he sure. played golf. And I wouldn't be caught dead with a golf club in my hand unless there was a poisonous snake nearby. <laughs> uh, so I mean, I you know I very very different people, but very, but brothers very, in music. Very I've heard different. You we found this place where we could communicate. You've said he was the best singer for you uh, for your uh, for he your was, kind of writing. It, that was just uh, it was some kind of divine intervention mm. to bring the the two of us together. I want to do some Jimmy Webb stuff that that I really do like because I think Jimmy Webb is probably one of the best contemporary songwriters in the world.
by the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. She'll find the note I left hanging on her door, and she'll laugh when she reads the part. That says I'm leaving. 'Cause I left that girl so many times before. By the time I make Albuquerque, she'll be working. She'll probably stop at lunch and give me a call. But she'll just hear that phone keep on ringing. Oh, the wall, and that's all. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Now, you probably because you're prolific and you've had so much success, you've been talked down on by a lot of like they called you middle of the road, yeah. and someone said uh, the Cole Porter of the '60s. And what what were some of the things the jabs? Oh, they I don't know, no. I re, I I you know I remember them well. You know, I it was generally people trying to say something good who oh, yeah. did the most damage. That's <laughs> they, interesting. They, they used to. Uh, I mean, they I, somebody called me pop music's Mozart. That was that just that was just humiliating. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but I think that that that. By and large, what they tried to do at the beginning was really tag me as a middle of the road guy, as as belonging to as probably a Republican and probably, uh, you know, four square state straight arrow, probably not what I was, which was crazy. Yeah, you know, and. And it took a while, but the I mean, I, I I say in my book, you know, that somewhere I ran a, ran a, across a quote in a magazine that was talking about me, and it said, and Harry Neil Nielsen was there with stoner friend Jimmy Webb, stoner friend, and and, 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 <laughs> and I and, and I said to myself, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> they didn't do their homework. Yeah, you know. Uh, they just wanted so badly to be able to just pin me down in that middle of the road slot. And I had this, I had an offer cause I'd gone up and I'd played uh, Wilbur Clark's desert Inn with Connie Stevens and I got great reviews there. And, uh, and so did she. And, um, we flew down and did a stars and stripes show in Oklahoma city. And I met Tom Stafford and, I played 
MacArthur Park with the Oklahoma City Symphony, and um, and then uh, we they we had a private jet and we flew back to L.A. But by the time I got to L.A., there was an offer with my agent to play Caesar's Palace for eight weeks a year for forty thousand dollars a week, which in those days was it's like a quarter of a million dollars. Incredible amount of money. Okay. Um, and all I had to do was play MacArthur Park. I would come out on the stage, sit at a white piano, play MacArthur Park, and the dancing fountains would come up. And then, oh, the dancing, no, the, I would sit at the piano. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not on stage yet. I'm below the stage. And the dancing fountains come up, and then the piano comes up yeah. as I'm playing MacArthur Park. <laughs> and I do this once a night. For a week. And I said, and you want me to sing? And they said, no, 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 no. We don't want you to sing. That'll, we couldn't pay you that much if you sing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 40 grand. Okay. For, for eight performances for, uh, they wanted to give me eight weeks a year. 40 grand a week. Yeah, 40, yeah. Grand, 40 grand a week, eight weeks a year to play MacArthur Park at Caesar's Palace. That's a real, that's offers for real. And um, I was going through a real crucible um, in terms of who I, who I wanted to be and not so much what other people thought of me, but what did I think of me? And um, I, I sort of... That, that was when I first touched base with, with David Geffen. And I sort of broke down in his living room one day and said, I know what I want to do, but I don't know how to get there. And he was he was this magician, you know, because he had Joni Mitchell and he had Sure. He was he, he had uh, Crosby Stills and Nash. He was creating the Eagles. He had Jackson Brown ready to go. And I said, what do I do? And he said, you can't play Vegas. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, he said, you can't play <laughs> Vegas. And he agreed to manage me. He, he, he managed me for a while. And he was a good manager. And he, and he, he by far, he was, he was the most influential guy I ever worked with in the business. I mean, he could make a phone call and some magical freaking thing would happen. And... Um, you know, Joni wrote a, a song about him called "The Star Maker Machinery," and he was he was that guy. He could make that happen. And uh, I made an album for Asylum, and mm-hmm. I really, really tried hard to to uh, you know, in a, in a sense, put my past behind me. Uh, but with a few more years on it, I looked back and I said, "What am I trying to put behind me? I'm trying to." Frank Sinatra behind me? I was just going to say that. How I'm many tra- people... I'm trying to put Glenn Campbell right. behind me. How many songwriters had Frank Sinatra come uh, I, and sit yeah, and just, yeah, say, you know, just say play for I'm tra- hours? I'm trying to put Barbara Streisand and Tony Bennett behind me so I can go out and, and, and be underappreciated by, you know... Uh, but that's what I did. I went out, I played the coffee house circuit. I played... In, here in New York, I played the bitter end. I love playing the bitter end. 
even in August when it was like 150 degrees in that little basement because Bill Evans was playing across the street. Wow. I'd take my breaks and go across the street to the Vanguard and listen to Bill Evans and have a, have a hamburger. And I was in heaven. And we'd play the main point in Philadelphia. We'd play the cellar door in Washington, D.C. There was a place in Denver called Marvelous Marv's. And then, of course, there was the Troubadour. Of course. And so, you know, that's what you did. You played those gigs and you sort of waited for something to happen. And in my case, album after album, gig after gig after gig, it never really sparked for me. I never really caught on with that audience. But I was determined to make my own records, go my own way, write my own songs, um, it's interesting because for somebody who's had such phenomenal success, and I'm reading in Toonsmith that you uh-huh. don't you don't refer to yourself, you don't think of yourself as a commercial songwriter. You said you said at one point in the book you wish you were. I wish I was. I, I well, let me let me put it this way: if I had been a commercial songwriter, and if I could have talked myself into it, uh, I would have a boat as big as David Geffen's now, but. I didn't go that way uh, because it, it, it was, I, uh, you know, and I've made a good living and I've had a good life. I would not go back and change it. I'm glad I did what I did because it's, there was, at some point in my life, around about the time I met David, I, I declared myself an artist. I just declared myself an artist, you know, like whether you think so or not, I'm an artist. That leads me to an important question. You turned down forty thousand dollars a week. <laughs> this is going to kill him. To play Jimmy. one song. This is going to kill him. Uh, my question is: What are you, an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> no. He turned. <laughs> he turned on Elvis Presley too. Ultimately. Well, the thing is. See, you would, t- you, would, you would agree to that deal, and you'd play that gig, and you'd get all that money, but then you're stuck there. You're never going to move off that spot. You're always going to be on the strip playing. You're just going to play a, uh, as, as, as the star of fame sets. You're going to be in a cheaper joint, and then a cheaper joint, and then a cheaper joint. And you're just going to move down the strip, and you're always going to be coming out of the pe- coming out of the stage work, you know, playing MacArthur Park. <laughs> you're never going to get to sing. You're never going to get to work with any of the people you really want to work with. And as as it is, I have to tell you, man, my life has been rich with uh, uh, musical uh, diversity and and the different characters. I've I've I've, I've had hits with uh, Art Garfunkel, uh, with Joni, uh, Judy Collins. Sure. Um, and I've had the respect of the people I wanted respect from, uh, everybody I learned, I learned, I learned that there was nothing wrong with Glenn Campbell's music and there was nothing wrong with the fifth dimension. There was nothing wrong with Frank Sinatra. There was nothing wrong with all that. Uh, and I've learned to embrace you know, both sides of the coin and say, okay, 
what I've got here is I've got a story that's worth telling, and you and, and you've got it right there in your hands, and it's like it's sort of getting to play on both sides of the street, and uh, you know, yeah, I if I had it to do over, Gilbert, I would turn it down again. It's gonna kill him. Uh, I'm it's not gonna, gonna slowly slow kill you him. ever again. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm sorry I had you on as a guest. Please get out of my studio. <laughs> Speaking of Caesars, Jimmy, tell us about being summoned to Caesars by uh, by Mr. Sinatra. Well, it it was uh, well, it was it was in, always invited. He was a man with you know impeccable manners, but. Uh, it was it was like no invitation you know that you would get ever get from anybody else because you'd arrive and um i used to drive my car up i would even drive probably in my cobra um and i'd take a sports car up there because you could drive as fast as you wanted to drive in nevada and i'd get up there and pull up in front of uh, caesar's palace they knew i was coming and he said good evening mr webb it's good to see you take my luggage, walk in. On the way in, the bellman would probably say, are you going to be needing any company tonight, Mr. Webb? And I would say, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, uh, walk up to the desk, and the lady would say, Mr. Webb, we've been expecting you. Your room is taken care of. Um, and then I would find out gradually over the next couple of days that I couldn't spend a, a, I couldn't spend a dime in the casino. And that I had a marker for, you know, a couple of thousand dollars. So How about I could, that? So I could play, you know, if I wanted to play 21, I could play. And, and I, I would really worry about anything. I'd take my father up with me. I was me. just going to say, your he pop was be, with you. Yeah. He would be covered, too. Yeah. And I remember one night that Mr. Sinatra took my father to the and I to the jockey club. And they got into this big discussion about World War II and about how ugly the Andrews sisters were. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and I don't know, a bomb in Pearl Harbor and all this stuff. And um, Here's your dad, a Baptist minister yeah. from Oklahoma, and now he's sitting with, with, with old blue eyes yeah. at, at, at the casino, and they're talking about the Andrews and sisters. Eventually, I sort of felt like left out, and I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to run. You guys talk. And they went out later, I guess, and played... Baccarat, Mendevere, or something <laughs> wild, which I, I think probably wiped my father out on the first bet, because Sinatra would literally bet fifty grand a pop on that crazy Baccarat. You know, it's a great. I mean, it's a great game in a way, but man, you know, that's a lot of money. And um, so he, my father, after that, he was like I say in my book, he was like a made guy. <laughs> You know, right. <laughs> he, he like he walked the walk. He talked the talk. He, he just had a bounce in his step. I mean, from then on, you know. And he he started wearing a big pink, like a big diamond on his <laughs> on his pinky ring, pinky finger. I love that. He wasn't by then. He had moved out of the ministry. He wasn't a preacher anymore. He'd sort of become a record guy. It's interesting. Yeah, a man who told you that songwriting was going to break your heart one day. Yeah, he. He came over to my side. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's a nice piece of redemption. <laughs>
And how did it work? He used to just, this was fascinating that I found in my research. Frank would pull up a chair and just, and you'd sit at the piano and he'd say, he'd just say, play another one. He play liked, another one. So, he liked songwriters. He liked, always did, bef- long before I came along. Um, it was Sammy Kahn. It was, mm-hmm. uh, he recorded uh, like a hundred sure. Sammy Kahn songs. Um James Van Heusen. Yes, yeah. He'd always and he'd always credit the songwriters. Harold Arlen. He was always anxious to credit the songwriter, mm-hmm. which is different from just crediting the songwriter. He was excited to do it. And I would be sitting, you know, he would have a table for me right beside, right snugged up close to the stage, and he would come out and and the excitement was unbelievable. I, I kind of get into it a little bit in the book. There was Nelson Riddle standing there holding wow. a stick. You know, and every music stand said, Nelson Riddle, Nelson Riddle. I mean, Jack T. Garden is there. You know, all the great black brass players from the L.A. Then like 30 strings and like Hal Blaine playing drums and this great big. Oh, the wrecking crew. Uh, timpani. Timpani and bells and chimes and things. And then a little woodwind section. It was like a little symphony orchestra. He would come out and sing, I got you under my skin. And there would be women passing out. I mean, literally passing out. And the show would just keep rolling. They would come in and, and roll the, roll the ladies out. And, 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 you know, the show would just keep going. And they were just, you know, they were, you know, he was such an impressive performer. Here's some love songs played beautifully by our string section. This is Jimmy Webb. This time we almost made those pieces fit. Didn't we, girl? This time we nearly made some sense of it. Didn't we, girl? And uh, this time I held the answer right here in my hand Uh, Then I touched it And it had turned to sand This time Sang our song in two Didn't we, girl This time we nearly made it up to the moon Didn't we, girl Vegas was a great place in those days. It was. Because you could... Get up close to the animal, you know. You could practically get you could get Sinatra sweat on you, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was it was very visceral. It was like, you know, you should have seen like the kind of money that was changing hands to get closer to the stage. Wow, anything to get closer to the stage. And you uh, are you met with um, Elvis Presley. Oh, several times. Yeah. Several did you see times. him? Did you see him live in Vegas, Elvis? I saw him when he opened at the International Hotel. Uh huh. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people from LA went up thinking, 
nobody really knew what Elvis was going to do. Uh, It had been a long time since he played a live show. And even Elvis didn't know what was going to happen. He was he was very nervous about it. And um, I think that a lot of cynics went up kind of hoping, gee, I hope he falls on his ass, you know. There's that thing, you know, there's that thing. And I, I kind of went up dispassionately, and I'm saying, you know, I never really got this guy when I was a kid, but I'm just going to check this out, you know. And walked into this gorgeous showroom, brand new, probably 1,500 or 2,000. I think they served 2,000 dinners for every show at the International. It became the Hilton International. Uh, And then I don't know what it became after that. I think they might have torn it down by now. But um, that first night, I was sitting up next to the the stage, and I I was sitting at a long table, but I was—I had the seat next to the stage, and about six seats down, this guy, this guy was glowering at me like he was giving me a bad face, and it was Jim Brown. Wow, the great fullback, back. sure. And and uh, I said hi, you know, and he went, you know, like you're closer to the stage than I am. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get closer to the stage than me? Um, and Elvis came out, and he did the whole Elvis thing. And man, I, I just became Elvis fan to the core. I mean, he there he, there's no doubting that there was this magic. There there was a magnetism that just permeated the room and just got inside you. And James Burton playing guitar, great great drumming, and he was very solid in the rhythm section. Man, he knew what he was doing there. And he was a rocker. He really was the king of rock and roll. And you might sit there for a little bit. First thing you knew, and your 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 behind was moving. You were patting your foot. You were into it. And after the show, he walked all the way down the front of the stage and started and was giving out silk scarves to all the girls because by now there's hundreds of girls. He's putting a scarf around their neck and kissing them. And he gets down and he bends over me, and I think. Oh God, he's gonna kiss me! He thinks I'm a girl. I had, I had really long, I had long hair. He bent over and he dropped a note. He actually dropped a piece of paper on the table and it said, "Jimmy, come backstage, Elvis." Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and after the after the show, these two big burly. Nevada, like Highway Patrol guys, police, I guess they were Clark County sheriffs. They they came and got me on both sides and just half carried me through this crowd and back through the kitchen. And I went through all these little, like, double doors and these little confined spaces and finally came up to this kind of a drab-looking dressing room. And they pushed open the door, and Colonel Tom Parker was standing right in front of me, and he said, he says, you Jimmy Webb. He said, I guess you're here to see Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> and if not, for, do I have this right? If not for the colonel wanting... wanting, uh, He moved me out. Yeah. After about the fourth time, Elvis and I were together because we were getting along, and Elvis wanted to record MacArthur Park. That's what I was going to say. And uh, 
Tom Tom Parker was not going to let that happen. He had to have a, Elvis had to have all the publishing on everything he yeah. recorded. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't going to make that deal anyway. But he he he. You know what? He told Lieber and Stoller to to piss off as well. I mean. He's the guy who said, "Nah, Elvis don't want to record with the Beatles." I mean, he he was he was the guy. You know, Elvis never toured Europe. Never, there was never a, a London concert because of the Colonel. Because of the Colonel. Because the Colonel's background was so dubious in the immigration department that people thought maybe that he was afraid to go back over there. He was a he was a carny. Yeah. If you know what yeah. that means. Oh, yeah. We had Steve Binder on the show. Do you know Steve, the Tammy yes, show? Yes, I know him. Did he tell you some Elvis he stories? He told us some Elvis stories, but also some Colonel stories. Did, yeah. he, did he tell yeah. you the one about Elvis standing on the corner on Sunset and waiting for people to recognize him? I don't think he did. Yeah. He, he t- he, Elvis told Steve Binder one time. Steve was a good friend of mine. He told him, he, Steve says, let's go to lunch. We'll go over to the Hamburger Hamlet. And Elvis said, I can't go down there. They'll tear me apart. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and Steve said, uh, I tell you what. He says, I'll bet you that you can stand on this corner right right down here at the bottom of the stairs. I bet you you can stand there for 20 minutes, and they won't tear you apart. And he finally, you know, twisted his arm and I guess shamed him into it. He got Elvis out there on the sidewalk. And Elvis stood there for 20 minutes, and nobody said a freaking word. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. That's a, that's a Steve Bender story. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> well, this man has had a very long day. Oh, yes. So we're going we're gonna to cut him some slack. You should tell us if you have anything to plug right now. He does. You, you got your book. He's got the book, and we're going to plug the Carnegie Hall show again. A celebration of the music of Jimmy Webb, The Cake and the Rain. Uh, and what a lineup, Jim. Ashley Campbell. Oh, we have another plug that came from outside. Uh, yes, musicof.org. Uh, tickets are available. Oh, also at jimmyweb.com and the Carnegie Hall website. Thank you, Frank and, and Jimmy Webb team. And and then to show that I have no respect for you <laughs> and your your work and your fatigue... <laughs> oh, jeez. And his phone's going yes, off. Yes, that, that's the show, really. Uh, can we please, please, we have to sing a little of Wichita Lineman. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. He's going to indulge you again. Just not, not to me when it's time for me to start. <laughs> okay, here you go. He doesn't have a key, Jim. I am a lineman for the, the county. And I drive the main road Searching in the sun For another overload I hear you singing in the wire I can hear you through the wine And the Wichita lineman Is still on the line is he? Is he too far? <laughs> is he too far ahead, Jim, or is he too far behind? <laughs> He's lost in space. <laughs>
he's he's, <laughs> he's kind of in a John Cage thing. <laughs> yeah, John Cage. He's a performance artist. Oh God! By the way, I love what Billy how Billy Joel describes Wichita lineman, an an ordinary man having extraordinary thoughts. Yeah, he got to me when he said that. He actually like punched a button and I, I like. A tear went squirting out of the side, but I, I got control of myself very quickly. But uh, he actually kind of got to me when he said that. When, if we ever get you, you back, we'll talk about more about the songs and, and, and the history. Okay. And look, some of the stuff that you do in your show is just so fascinating. Uh, yeah, it'd be great to come. Okay. And so, also, oh, one oh, last thing. But only if we get to do some more yes. duets. <laughs> 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 he also wrote, we've talked, another song we've talked about on this show, The Worst That Can Happen. Oh, Johnny wow. Maestro and the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah. yeah do you hate that one, too? <laughs> <laughs> we, we love them. He has a strange way of showing his affection for the songs, Jim. <laughs> I'm going so, to plug the oh, lineup of the event again. Uh, Ashley Campbell, the daughter time. of... I'm glad you came. Uh, Ashley Campbell, Glenn's daughter, Judy Collins, Art, Art Garfunkel, Amy Grant, Hanson, Toby Keith, Marilyn McCoo, and Billy Davis. We love them. Uh, Graham Nash, Johnny Rivers. God, we love Johnny Rivers. Yeah, we should ask a, you Johnny Rivers you know stories what? next time. I want to say this while we're on the air. I want to say this. It's a freaking shame, man, that Johnny Rivers isn't in the rock and roll. Oh, how can thing. that be? That's oh, all oh. I got to say. Love oh, him. Wait, wait, why does... With something else on the glass. Oh, yeah. and Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah, of course. They're they're will be, be hosting a, a very very important part of the evening, and dear friends, and everyone there is a is a friend, and a and a good person. So your life will be flashing before your eyes yet again. I'm I'm definitely going to get emotional. I I haven't gotten emotional yet, but I know that I'm going to get emotional about it. Well, this was a thrill. and Because it will never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> no? And I will never happen again. <laughs> we will never happen again. No. We will never pass this way again. <laughs> you got you, you lived out a lifelong dream there. You oh, got to yes. sing Wichita Lineman yes. with Jimmy Webb. <laughs> and I want to plug the book, too. The Cake and the Rain, Jimmy Webb, a memoir. I apologize for not reading it. I tried desperately to get yes. my hands on no, it. No, no. But, it, but it just came out. And uh, so I'll wrap up by saying, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to a man who turned down forty <laughs> fucking thousand dollars a week to play one fucking song. <laughs> the asshole Jimmy Webb. <laughs> Jimmy, this was a thrill. <laughs> Thank thanks, you. thanks for coming and doing it. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Thank buddy. You. Thank you. Bye bye. I will have the things that I desire and let my passion flow like rivers through the sky. And after all the loves of my life, oh, after all. Of my life, I'll be thinking of you and wondering why.
Garthur's bark is melting in the dark All the sweet green icing flowing down Someone left the cake out in the rain I don't think that I can take it Cause it took so long to bake it And I'll never have a recipe